0: Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This is Betty Lovette. I'm in West Orange, New Jersey, and I'm a rhythm and blues singer. I'm conditioning my hair, and I've got a plastic bag on my head. (laughs) This is my 60th year in show business, and if you're messing with rhythm and blues, at all, you're messing with me.
2: Hey, it's Zach here. Welcome back to the show on the road. This week, we are going to mess with some rhythm and blues, and I could try to describe what Betty LeVette is all about, but with that laugh and this voice, she kind of says it all.
1: i no grudge. There's no resentment underneath. And we'll just be friends
2: if there's one person who has endured the slings and arrows of our music business and has every right to hold a grudge, it's probably Betty LeVette. Unlike certain blues and soul luminaries and professional song stylists like Sharon Jones or Diana Ross or Tina Turner who may have retained or grown that late-in-life national recognition and respect, Betty LeVette is still one of those best-kept secrets that curious listeners like me may only now be discovering. And despite being nominated for many Grammy Awards, including for her heart-rending newest LP Blackbirds, you can hear in her voice and in that deep sense of urgency in her delivery, that she's just as hungry to be heard as when she was a teenage hitmaker in Detroit making singles in the dawn of the Motown explosion. Over the last few years doing this show, I've been privileged to talk to some elder icons in our music family, and it pains me to see that episodes with folks like Bobby Rush and the Blind Boys of Alabama and Steve Earle get far less listens than the younger hip artists that I put out. But you know what? I learned so much more from them, and they make me a better songwriter and honestly, a better human being. For me, they're like walking history books. For once, I'm not gonna wax poetic though about Betty LeVette and all the history that is deep inside her vocal cords or how she kinda wanted to be an astronaut or a Lady James Brown or how she threatened to kick my ass when I got nostalgic about her still creating music six decades in. If I learned anything from this conversation, it's that Betty doesn't really like bullshit. So I'm gonna let her tell you how it all went down. Keep in mind that we were taping this on different coasts, so her sound quality can be a little dicey at times. Anyway, please subscribe to the show, share this with your friends and family, and leave us a kind review on iTunes. It means so much. I love sharing my favorite music with you. Okay, here she is now, Betty LeVette. I'm uh, so thankful that I'm able to talk to you. Um, You know, listening through your catalog, um, I can really see how vulnerable and how open you've gotten Uh, and how you've given yourself permission to be vulnerable uh, with this new record, Blackbirds. Um, It's just a really moving record, especially, um, I think, with what the country's going through right now. Do you feel like you're a a totally different singer now than you were 10 years ago or, or, you know, especially 20, 30 years ago?
1: No, I'm a totally different singer than I was 20 or 30 years ago. But I guess I've been about the same for the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years. I guess I've been about the same for the last 20 years. But it took me, I feel, it took me, and it's a fact, it took me a good 15 or 20 years to learn to sing. I've always had a voice, and I could always right. sing the songs, but it took me a, a good 15 or 20 years to get where I am right now, in my head and in my voice.
2: You know, especially... In that opening track, No Grudge, the Nina Simone song, it just feels it feels like that song was waiting to be sung right now. I
1: heard the song 20 years ago, and I said if I ever record again, and if I ever get for the company who will allow me to do this album that I just did, which would, I don't know anybody else who would have let me do it other than Verve. But I've had the tune, and I um, just accidentally met the writer of the tune, at a party. And he had heard me sing a song, and he said, I wrote this tune for Nina Simone about 30 years ago, he said, and you would just kill it. And I said, what's the name of it? He said, I, I hold no grub, grudge. I said, I know you won't believe this, but I have been holding this tune for almost 20 years now.
2: Wow!
1: And so when I recorded it, I wow. sent it to him, and he was very pleased. And I was so pleased that he was pleased. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's off that record, uh, The High Priestess of Soul from 1967. And you heard it in a in a hair salon in Detroit, right?
1: Yeah, it just came on the radio. And um, I heard it only that once. It wasn't until we started talking about recording it until I heard it again. I just heard it that once that they played it. And I said, if I ever record again, I'm recording that tune.
2: And I've heard that you say that, uh, you know, when you reinterpret a song, um, you're not hearing the original after that first time you're hearing how you're going to do it and how your voice is going to express the lyrics right
1: oh absolutely it's very much like making
2: love
1: (laughs) i hold no grudge there's no resentment underneath i'll extend the laurel wreath and we'll be friends And right now is where it ends. I uh, I really don't, I don't, I just listen to uh, the song to learn the melody because I can't play any instrument, so I have to learn the melody so that the melody can dictate to me how the song goes. And then uh, my husband friends up the lyrics for me. And uh, before I met him and he started printing them up for me, listening to the music over and over and writing the lyrics down, he helped me to learn it. By the time I got it all written down, I knew it. So it, uh, it, it's much easier now. But um, I don't I don't listen to the tune. And then after I record it, I don't listen to it anymore.
2: <laughs> well, you transferred, I think, the pain that Nina Simone maybe was expressing about, uh, you know, an ex-lover and how uh, he's hurt her so deeply, and she's uh, basically trying to stick the knife in one last time. And you're you're kind of transferring it to the pain you've experienced in the music business and how, you know, systems of um, racism and discouragement kept you from being heard on a wider scale for so long. You know, you talked about you know, Having this record in 1969, that you know, when Bobby Gentry re released it, it went number one, but yours was only heard on the black stations and then it kind of disappeared, you know. And that's that ha- that's happened to so many uh black artists throughout the years,
1: yes, absolutely. It's a hurtful thing, it's true. I don't know what, I, and I mean, it, well, it still kind of happens, it's not because now there is um. Uh, It's kind of like the NBA, blacks dominate rap and hip hop so, so much until it's kind of hard to get around them if that's the route you're going.
2: Yeah, you know, there's been certain artists like uh, Jeff Tweedy and Wilco, I don't know if you know him, who've actually talked about the idea of a music industry reparations plan, you know, which... I think should happen. No one will ever pass it, probably. But, you know, what would be the way to honor Black artists and the contributions that they've made?
1: Just for those two particular ones you mentioned, they they could start off by returning my call. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. <laughs> it's a good start.
1: Uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a mighty start there. I, uh, most of my contemporaries... Um, either aren't doing this anymore or they've passed on. So I'm definitely a part of the bridge that these little children can cross on. And I'd like them to know that.
2: When you say rhythm and blues, you know, and you didn't hesitate on identifying yourself as an artist in that genre, what does that genre mean for you now?
1: Oh, it means almost nothing to the industry because they've taken it and applied it to every... All you have to be to be an R&B singer today is be black. That's all you have to be. That is all you have to be. But I would love uh, the the rhythm and blues singers that I know and have grew up with and have worked with. I would love to see any of the rhythm and blues stars just even come on behind them on stage now. From James Brown to Otis Redding to Aretha Franklin to Gladys Knight to Patti Bell to all those rhythm and blues singers. They're not only rhythm and blues singers, they're dangerous rhythm and blues singers that shoot you. Right. You should not mess with.
2: <laughs> and you toured with Otis Redding, right?
1: Uh-huh. I worked with all those people I've just named at one time or another, or certainly if they were from Detroit, I saw them on a daily basis.
2: What was the Detroit scene like when you were coming up? I know uh, you had a, s- a single called My Man, He's a loving Man, uh, that kinda of did well in this in 62. I mean it's amazing that we're we're talking now in twenty twenty and you had a hit song when my dad was seven years old.
1: <laughs> Zach, when I see you I'm popping you as soon as I can take your mask off and get close to you.
2: <laughs> so many people from that era are gone.
1: I am amazed by it. I'm really amazed by it and so grateful that I've been able to say so so strong, you know, and not approach the stage on a walker or with a different voice, my voice has actually gotten stronger and better as I've gotten older. I don't, everybody keeps saying, "Stop looking at the gift horse in the mouth." <laughs> uh-huh. So I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I mean, it's almost like, um, you know, how young uh, young boys, I think yours, I'm sure, how your voice changes at that certain point. Uh-huh. Mine just got thicker and rougher. I sound probably more like James Brown now than I ever did. <laughs>
2: Well, if you listen to that song, uh, "My Man, He's a Lovin' Man," you can hear the sort of innocence of that time, but also the, you know, kind of playfulness in your tone. Uh, I think, unlike uh, some of your contemporaries, you were never afraid of expressing sexuality and, uh, you know, the deeper parts of love songs that maybe certain singers would shy away from. You know, and that was still. Uh, A time in the in the early '60s where, you know, women were not necessarily appreciated as full sexual beings.
1: Black women always were, unfortunately, all Mm -hmm. too often only on those
2: bases. Go on.
1: (laughs) Go on. Go on with what? I mean, that's it. That's the statement. Black women uh, often were. I used to laugh when I said. They, when they were talking in the early 60s about burning bras, I said, black women have just gotten to where they could afford them. <laughs> People will talk until they break up your homes. And they'll try to tell you that you are wrong. My man was smart, he wouldn't go for that, he said, come No, we have not. We've not come up uh, uh, the same. And it's it's uh, with blacks. It's 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 uh, three. There's a day-to-day black. There's a black that has the slave mentality, and there's the black that came was fortunate enough to get into something like show business, and and make uh, several dollars and get to be known all over the world. But. We've, we've got three different kinds of set. And then, of course, there's your Baptist black, <laughs> the one who's bound to church. But it's it's four different kinds of of, but they've, they've primarily been treated the very same way, no matter what.
2: Another song uh, from the 60s that became a hit in the R&B uh, circuit was Let Me Down Easy.
1: Let me down easy For your love me is gone. Let me down, is
2: it? And you could feel uh, that energy of the time, you know, Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, uh, Aretha. And that music still resonates today. I mean, you see it on TV and movies. You know, they're doing a new Aretha Franklin biopic right now. You know, there's, there's something timeless about that sound.
1: Well, if it's true... If it's true, it it it, it, it will last. And that, that's one of the comforts I find about, about 80% of the music today. I know at least the world doesn't have to be bothered with it forever because it's not true enough to last.
2: Right. When you start laying down a song like your interpretation of Strange Fruit, right, there's so much weight and history in that song. And for a long time... Uh, you had no interest in bringing that song back, right?
1: Well, I was just, it was just that I was young and that wasn't the music of my time. You right. know, as I got older, I i, I wanted to do it, but when, when I was asked to do it the first time and Sly and the Family Stone were hot, I wanted to dance. I didn't want to sing yeah. Strange Fruit. And I never thought of myself as a jazz singer. So my slow songs were chose- They were either deeply rhythm and blues or that was it. I mean, that was about it. slow songs went because I didn't want to be I wanted to dance.
2: You know, that song has so much pain in it. And I think uh, as the civil rights movement started to really gain traction, you know, I can totally understand the feeling that we want to, like, celebrate and, and have movement and and high-energy songs. Why would we want to remind ourselves of the lynching that is still going on in the South? You know, that's a scary thing.
1: Southern trees They're a strange fruit Blood on the leaves Blood at the root a lot of jazz singers, nobody sung it for a long while. They sung God as a Child, but um, nobody sung Strange Fruit for a long while. Everybody made it a point of knowing about it and being aware of it, but 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 nobody really uh, sung it that, that much. And then it's, it's, a, it's such a moody song. You just have to go to such a black, dark place. Through the scenes of the gallant South, bulging eyes and twisted mouths, the scent of Magnolia. And the sudden smell of burnt flesh.
2: In the years, you know, when you weren't uh, being recognized, where you, ain't, where you weren't able to tour and make music uh, your life, what were the things that you were doing to get by?
1: Singing for smaller amounts of money. <laughs> There's just something magical about that stage. And so, I mean, people have offered me, in in England, I had this family offer me a home, a a cottage home in in the north of England. But it's uh, the people, my my manager always jokes, he said, the people who like her really like her. (laughs) Yeah. And many of them have been with me for the whole uh, 59 years. And, um they i've I've always been able to resort to um to this when I was in New York there was i because I just found myself well I was just a kid and I just believed everything everybody said because I just wanted to be there with them and I wanted them to let me in and like me <laughs> but i I really have not had the industry has mistreated me, but by and large people have not, and I've not um. I've always had a home to go to in Detroit, which my mother and my sister always um, always made sure was was there. And I, um, when I wasn't in Detroit, I was somewhere else spending somebody else's whatever. And then too, I've always made it a point of having friends who have jobs. Most of my friends are not entertainers.
2: <laughs> Smart the opening track off of your 2005 record, I've Got My Own Hell to Raise, um, it starts with this just beautiful acapella, um, almost spoken word type singing. Um, you know, you you're, it's just your voice and all its sort of scars and pain and glory, you know. And I love when uh, an album can start with the essence of an artist, and I feel like you really captured, you know, the gratitude that you've had to learn through the many years uh, that you, you know, you've gone through the desert, and you realize that you have everything you need, even though maybe you haven't gotten everything you've wanted.
1: That's right.
2: When you're when you sing that song, or when you recorded that song, what do you think that message meant to you?
1: Oh, it meant I meant when I when I did it, so much was happening that I wanted to happen for so long, and I was reasonably satisfied. And that was really what I was saying, and that I b- had picked up all these skills and learned these things, and I was reasonably happy. Uh, but like anything else, after I won those first few little awards in this fifth career, then I started wanting more.
2: <laughs> right, you got the Grammy nomination, and you know, starting like uh, the taste of the big well, time the again.
0: Well,
1: the first year of this fifth career, I was inducted into the Rhythm and Blues uh, Hall of Fame, and I won um, uh, Best Rhythm and R&B Vocalist from the Blues Foundation, and so I was. Uh, that was the first thing I'd ever won in my entire life, even at the casino. Uh-huh. So, but uh, after that, then I said, "Hmm, next year I'd like to." Win. <laughs> so I'm walking through the desert. And I'm not scared, although it's so hot. I have everything that I've requested. And I do not want what I have not got. You know, I'm, I'm I'm I pretty much have everything I've ever asked for. I just I need some more money now, but I I pretty much Don't we have, all. have everything that I've ever asked for. I have a husband who loves me. I have a wonderful home. I got my kitty cats. Uh, my daughter and my grandchildren are all healthy and and doing what they want to do, and I'm I'm pretty cool.
2: Let's go back to uh, Detroit and growing up. You know, what did your folks do when you were a kid?
1: Well, both my parents uh, came north from Louisiana to work um, when the factories were, were big in the 40s. And uh, I was born in Muskegon, Michigan, and they both um, worked in parts factories there before they okay. came to Detroit to work in the real big places. But they, um, they sold corn liquor, and uh, um, because it was, segregation was still going on, if you wanted to drink after dinner, you had to go uh, after work. You had to come to my house because you couldn't go anywhere yeah. else in 1946 and 47. So they came to my house. My mother made chicken sandwiches and fried fish sandwiches, and they sold. And uh, she made homebrew, and they sold that. And they sold corn liquor. And everybody that worked with them came by, and they could run a tab till the end of the week when they got paid. And nobody could cuss with my mother, and she did. And Mm -hmm. that's how I learned it so proficiently. And uh, you you couldn't come there with a girlfriend; it had to be your wife or a known girlfriend. You know, it wasn't a joint. (laughs) Yeah. And we had a jukebox in the living room, which is where I learned all my first songs. I learned all the songs on the jukebox.
2: What is your cocktail of choice?
1: Cocktail, drink. Yeah. Drink. I like champagne, a tremendous smell. It's in my contract.
2: <laughs> well, you're classy like that. Uh, <laughs> my dad uh, always tells this story about uh, meeting Muddy Waters in Chicago when he was in college.
1: Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty.
2: And Muddy Waters brought them back to his house and served them champagne and eggs at like 4 a.m. Well,
1: that, that's why it's in my contract, my first in the beginning of this fifth career, Mike Cappos, who brought Muddy Waters back to life before he died, and John Lee Hooker, he, um, he, Muddy had it in his contract. And I said, I could I put it in mine? He said, you can put anything you want in there. So <laughs> that's how it wound up. Uh, Moet's Champagne is in my contract because it was in Muddy Waters. Bring my woman, sell right down here by my side.
2: Did you actually know him?
1: No, I didn't get a chance to meet him. I didn't get a chance to meet that whole faction because it—I wasn't working in the kind of places they were working in when they were working, and right. I was mine was in the new burgeoning more rhythm and blues than blues. So they were like all the way on the downside. The only one who was surviving when I started singing was BB King and and Little Milton. Um, uh, uh, what's the other one saying? Jimmy Reed was just kind of having his last couple of records the first couple of years that I sung, and then they all just disappeared.
2: And you had never actually really heard the song Blackbird by the Beatles until your husband brought it before you, right? Right. Which seems hard to believe, but it's kind of amazing how much you <laughs> embody that song when you're singing it now.
1: Well, it it, it said what I wanted to say. You know, it was just as if I was getting ready to make a speech and somebody bought me the exact words I wanted to say. It's not hard to be passionate about saying exactly what you mean and what you want to say. I sung the song the first time on the stage at the Hollywood Bowl in a tribute to the Beatles. And I had lived in Hollywood, which is, I don't care for L.A., <laughs> but I had um, I had lived in Hollywood uh, just walking distance of the Hollywood Bowl and wow. never and never made enough money the whole while I lived there to even see a concert at the Hollywood Bowl and when I was standing on that stage singing blackbirds at night and those 32 or 37 strings came in which I had never heard behind me in my life and yeah. it was a beautiful summer evening I had on something that was flowing there were a lot of huge stars on the show and it was, what more to say than all of my life, I've waited for this moment to arrive. I took my sunken eyes And taught my own self how to see All, all of my life I am waited For this moment to be free
2: Well, I always say that Beatles, you know, McCartney and Lennon, it's like they're the the Beethoven and Mozart of our modern music age in a way. You know, so many people can reimagine their songs and it's just as fresh and just as perfect as it was when it came out, you know, in the late 60s. Um, you know, they're sort of like the, almost like the Shakespeare of our time.
1: You have to say present company uh, uh, accepted knowing that I grew up with Smokey Robinson right across the alley from me.
2: (laughs) Did you guys know each other as teenagers?
1: No he's a little older than I am and uh, I didn't meet him until I started singing but because he and Jackie Wilson lived on the north end uh, everybody knew them of course and knew where they lived and but I, I didn't meet either one of them until I uh, started singing. I had never gone to a concert of Minute Little Bar until I started singing. I was only 16.
2: Well, it's funny because there's there's songs that I hear of yours now um, that feel like they could be connected to um, younger soul R&B pop singers. Like um, I don't know if you know Amy Winehouse um, or uh, singers like her who embody this sort of crossover between um, old school soul and pop music um, and again that music just feels like it can exist in any era and like you said it's true so it works you know um, and there's a song off your album Worthy from 2015 um, called uh, When I Was a Young Girl where you talk about Learning from the mistakes that you made uh, and that you can't get a sneak preview of what you're going to go through. Right. Uh, is there something that you wish you could have done differently as a young singer? Uh,
1: yeah, I wish I had looked at this more like a, a, a job. As I said, my uh, the, the things that have happened to me mostly have happened. I didn't cause them to happen or had I been... Living any other way, maybe if I had been with some other people, they wouldn't have happened. But I wasn't. Um, I, I, uh, for instance, the the first first uh, couple of weeks that I was Betty LaVette, my manager was shot and almost killed by Mary Wells' husband. And I, I didn't know anybody in show business, so I was just kind of wandering around there for a moment. <laughs> You can't get a sneak review Of what you're gonna go through And you gotta rely on your body and mind To see the light from the
2: There's so many greats uh, same, but from that era respect who respect never made good it good out good of that era. You know, you look at Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, uh, people who... I wish I could see now as a music fan. Mm-hmm.
1: I miss their voices in the air. Their, their songs, uh, because there used to be so much radio and doors open, the windows are open, the car windows are down, and just the songs that were in the air, the sounds of the voices, I miss them. I miss I miss Marvin, and, and um, there's just so many voices that I just miss hearing in the air, not a particular song, anything, just their voices
2: being in the air I I was able to go into uh, this recording studio in LA called the Sound Factory Um, and I'm going to lay down some tracks next week there and it's where in that studio B that Marvin Gaye laid down what's going on you know and you could like feel the ghosts of that time swirling in the room you know they're still there you know you could and I, I wish I could you know Again, I could hear him in person, and I'm glad that there's certain folks like you who can bring that history to me now.
1: Okay, speaking of of bringing history, I won't say that he didn't do anything at the sound factory, but one of the funny things about what's going on is damn everybody in Detroit was on the record. (laughs) Yeah. It's been hours. I mean, people were just hanging out over there. I mean, it's... A line of cars, like there was an event going on. And Detroit Lions, some of the Tigers, the other groups,
2: everybody <laughs> saw that If you could collaborate with anyone that you've ever worked with uh, on a new record or maybe if you could collaborate with anybody that you wish you could have worked with on a new record, who would it be?
1: Ray Charles and, uh, and Quincy Jones. I would like to have worked with both of them.
2: I would pay good money to see that.
1: Uh, at one point, I would have paid them to let me do it. <laughs> but I'm I'm pretty pleased. Um, the producer I have right now and Steve Jordan is kind of what I've, I've looked for in a Quincy Jones. There are not a lot of black producers who've had mm. the opportunity to do as many things musically as Steve has. There are not a, black, a lot of black rhythm and blues singers who've had the opportunity to do as many things as I've had. They've either become really big stars, and that's what they did from then until now, uh, but I've had the opportunity to be in a Tony Award-winning Broadway play, learn how to tap dance, sing in, in the, the Baby Grand, which is one of the most uh, plush, was one of the most plush nightclubs in in, uh, in New York and, and in Small's Paradise. And all those places just added more dimensions to me. I'm no longer just to aid that one thing, you know, which is why i venture into recording uh, things like the British rock songs and the Bob Dylan tunes, because I've had to do, because they weren't calling me, I had to do what the gig called for. And that was many things over over a 60 year period, which is why my manager told me early on, uh, the manager who made this artist you're talking to now, Jim Lewis, he told me, he said, you got a cute little waistline and a cute booty, but you're gonna to have to learn how to sing some songs, because it's not guaranteed you're going to be a star. And he yeah. said, you could be a good singer without being a star and you can work the rest of your life. And that pretty much is what I've done. But because I knew these songs, because I knew Sweet Georgia Brown and God Bless a Child and could sing them both, I got Libro and Bubbling Brown Sugar. You know, but I these aren't songs that I wanted to sing. They're songs that Jim made me learn like strange fruit. He said, I want musicians, great musicians to respect you. And I want you to be thought of as one of the best song stylists and interpreters ever. And that was mm-hmm. really what he was interested in. I was chasing the hit record. He was chasing a good singer.
2: Well, he did an amazing job, I think, of, of having you sound like you could be on pop radio right now, right? <laughs> like, I, like I could hear you. You mean I had
1: to be the uh, only, only black chick in Detroit opening my show with Love Will Keep Us Together.
2: <laughs>
1: and I've got to be the only black chick who recorded Feelings. When it first the first week it came out, Jim made me go in the studio and record it. Sometimes I would sing things, I would be so embarrassed, like when I went, we had to do my little band, they were called The Fun Company, and they were like 17, 18, and 19. And we had to go to this big dance and we had to do Lover Man. We were so Mm -hmm. embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) And then when it went on, when the the, 10 years later at the inaugural for our mayor, we were the only young band who could play something other than young music. So we got the game.
2: <laughs> well, everything old is new sometimes, <laughs> but that song book of lies, um, that you did with Jordan on this new record. Um, it feels again, like if a 20 year old R and B singer sang it, uh, it would feel totally relevant. It feels (laughs) like, like you have a, a youthfulness, you know, this vulnerability in your voice that, you know, every broken promise breaks your heart over and over again. And we can feel that hurt in your voice. And maybe that comes from experience and, and, um, you know, you could hear the, the history in your voice, but... Again, um, I mean,
1: that is, that is what you are hearing. When people say, how can you... What keeps you up and keeps you going on? I said, well, the thing that keeps me going on is I don't know how to do anything else. And the thing that if I am up, it's that I get a chance to sing out all of my grievances. Right. So it's a tandem out of screaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Memory... Going through my head, accompanied by tears and sighs. I'm laying here on my lonely bed, reading from my book of lies.
2: What has it been like for you having experienced, obviously, the civil rights movement in the 60s and then seeing the tumult that has happened since the George Floyd killing? How has it been for you seeing this now?
1: I don't know exactly what you mean when you say that. I don't know exactly how to answer that. It's been like it's been for anybody else that saw it. I mean, it. it everybody right. saw it. You know, so anybody that that didn't think it was cool, I feel the same way that they feel. But um, and I and I also feel hopeful. I think that being able to see it has made it a little more real to some people who might have been denying it or not accepting it. And I I I believe we've made some some tremendous moves just here, right quickly. You know, I believe we've. We found out a tremendous amount since Barack Obama's uh, election. Uh, we, we pretty much know the ad- names and addresses of all the racists in the country. <laughs> right. So, I mean, we found, we found out an awful, awful lot. And this virus has, has caused um, people. Uh, I, I got a name, I'm probably one of three or four blacks. On, I live on a short block, you know, just a one block street. Uh-huh. and my neighbor who is white and who's been on this block forever he sent me a note early on right after the George Floyd killing and he said we just want you to know how much we love you and how proud we are that you're our neighbor and it made me cry
2: <laughs> well i think you know there's a whole resurgence of um movies and tv shows um remembering the era that the Black Panthers came up and that a lot of that awareness started being uh, you know basically thrust into white people's purview for the first time mm-hmm. you know um, and and I'm not sure how much you watch of that but um, I know when you were a young person in Detroit you know you identified more with Malcolm X than Martin Luther King Jr right?
1: Yep and I identified with the Panthers I mean I I most black kids, most black people my age, white people were the only thing that they saw their father be afraid of.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, it, it's, uh. so when the Panthers happened, they were riding around in their cars with their rifles laying on the front seat. I was loving them. I did not want to pray. I did not want to sing. I wanted to fight.
2: Well, and it's hard to not feel like, you know, Praying and singing and trying to unite everyone um, was a lost cause in a way. You know, it's like how how long can we try to reach across the aisle and bring these people into our world and not have have them kill us? Right. You know,
1: I um I I just was never able to, and I'm not a fighter. I mean, I'm the biggest punk in the world, but I I did not like that. Unevenness that I was seeing all around me, and I was never seeing anyone who uh, who was standing up to it. My my um, my husband and I were talking about, and you should hear some of our conversations because he's white, and he he's just finding out a lot of these things. But we were right. talking just recently. I was telling him about how the theater, at the time that um, in the heat of the night came out how the theater just erupted in cheers and applause when Sidney Poitier slapped, uh, mm. I can't think of his name, the white guy, uh, slapped him and Sidney slapped him back. And it was it was almost like a release.
2: <laughs> right, that was a big deal.
0: Uh-oh, honey, that was a huge deal. <laughs> we were just trying to clarify some of the evidence was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say last night about midnight. Good, be Yeah.
2: You saw it. I saw it. There
0: was a time But I could have had you shot.
1: Like all we I weep alone. Me my book book
2: If you could play any venue in the world uh, when it's safe to do so, hopefully later this year, where would it be?
1: I, I fortunately have had the opportunity to play every place I've ever wanted to play in my entire life. I've done, um, I've been at Carnegie Hall 11 times. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, the uh, wow. Carlisle was one of the other places to be in residence there. I've uh, done the Hollywood Bowl, I've done Lincoln Center, I've done the Montreux Jazz Festival, I've done the New Orleans Jazz Festival, I've done the Memphis Blues Festival, I've sung at uh, the Kennedy Center Honors. I, you know, I, I pretty much have done everything uh, and been every place that I, I uh, want to go or that I ever dreamed about going. So these last 15 years have been, I mean, its it's been a whirlwind of, of going and uh, it, it allowed me to kind of be my own ambassador because for the the almost 60 years that I've been singing, at least 10 people in every country has heard of me. Maybe they heard of me for 10 different things. <laughs> right. You know, so the Internet and my doing this world and traveling that Rosebud had me doing, um it has allowed me to promote my own career, and my own self and meet people and introduce myself to them who followed me for years in Sweden and in Italy and everywhere.
2: <laughs> I'm saying let's be let's be more ambitious. Let's say that you open the first festival ever on Mars. Okay? They're like, we gotta have better better be- vet you know, opening the Mars Music Festival, what song what song would you sing?
1: When I was younger, I really wanted to go to outer space. Oh, and yeah? you know, as you get older you get more frightened. So now I don't even like being this tall. Little <laughs> no, no <more laughs> any higher. <laughs> I've I've been everywhere I wanted to go and sung to every, in every place that I wanted to sing, I'd like for some of these things to be become annual now, you know, that I could be this place or that place every two years or every three years or something. I'd like for it to get settled where I'm an established, like uh, Ray Charles' last, well, that's it, so that's the, the, the career I've always wanted, Ray Charles career, but I don't want to keep going from place to place. I want to work in every major city in the country and probably in the world. I just like to work all the major cities in the world.
2: As an older artist, do you have trouble uh, memorizing lyrics? Sometimes I can't remember all my lyrics these days. Like, what is the way that you get in shape for a show?
1: Is that honey, it. I have no idea why I would have the glorious plan to record 10 Bob Dylan songs at this point in my (laughs) life. I took three and four verses out of some of those songs and they're still long. (laughs) (laughs) I have not been able to go on the stage. I can walk away from the lyrics. I don't just have to read them down, but I had to get glasses. I tell my audience, I said, I I told my audience that I would never wear glasses on stage and I would never go to bed smelling like Ben Gay. That's said I have lied on both counts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you earned it.
1: But I had to get glasses just because of this album, because of the Bob Dylan album. Yeah,
2: 2018, uh, that title track of <laughs> Things Have Changed, I think that's actually where I started uh, listening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that version, um, and it feels honestly very fitting right now. Yeah, uh, that that line. People are crazy and times are strange. I'm locked in tight and I'm out of range. There you go. I used to care. I used <laughs> to care, but things <laughs> change. have changed.
1: <laughs> I love this song. <laughs> a woman with a eye No one in front of me and nothing behind. Sitting on a strange man's lap, drinking champagne.
2: Did you get vaccinated?
1: Uh, I have my second shot to get next week.
2: You're a national treasure. It's important that you get vaccinated.
1: Ah! (laughs) Oh, I'm definitely going to get the vaccine. I want to see my grandchildren and my daughters. I want to see everybody. I miss people I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. Do you teach people or do you have people that you like are a mentor to?
1: No, you wouldn't want your child to do anything I said. <laughs> my, my, it's just that my grandchildren are unusual, that's how come I can talk to them. <laughs> Oftentimes I speak to a lot of, um, of uh, college classes. In fact, last week I spoke to a class at the University of Texas. Oh, and yeah. uh, they, when they asked me about show business, what advice would you give me? I say, honestly, this, it's the only advice I can give you. If you know how to do anything else, do it and do this for a hobby.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but like, what else would you rather be doing? I know it's been hard and it's been a long road, but like you said, you were not, like there's nothing else that you can do. It's like it's in you. No, and and
1: I was kind of, of, uh, I have the, the perfect temperament for this business. A lot of people don't. I mean, right. Elvis Presley didn't, you know? I mean, a lot of people don't, but I really have the temperament to be in this business. I, it has taught me patience. It's a different kind of patience. It's kind of a nervous kind of patience, but it right. doesn't lead me to go jump off any buildings or get strung out on anything or any, anything. I, I pretty much know how this business functions now, and I know for a fact that I can work for the rest of my life. If not for $50,000 a song, for $50 a song. I know that I can do that. This place, he ain't doing me no good. It's got me all fucked up. I should be in Hollywood. Just for a second there, I thought I saw something move. Shortcuts I might even dress and drag Only here would think it's got anything to prove.
2: If you never sang again after you recorded when you were a teenager, what line of work do you think you'd be in?
1: Oh, I have no idea. I'd probably be messing with some kind of people of the night. <laughs> because I, I I never wanted to I was never a, a scholastic. I never wanted to do the studying. I've always wanted to do the things that came natural to me and this comes natural to me. I don't know how I'd work with the children of the night because as I told you, I'm basically a punk so <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> but
1: uh, I, I can't imagine that uh, I would be doing anything good. If I didn't do this, the, the, I think that the business literally saved me. I was a very curious child. Anything I thought of, I would try. So mm. I, I and that's that's really not good. <laughs> so maybe you I, would
2: have been an astronaut. I'm sorry. Maybe you would have been an astronaut.
1: Yeah, if I've been a rocket scientist, you know, you have to be a rocket scientist to be an astronaut. <laughs> So, uh, I, as I said, I wouldn't have been willing to put in that kind of, of work. And this year, the show business is, here again, as I said, when it works, it's fun. You know, so um, it's not like going to a factory every day or to a restaurant or to a hospital. It's fun, and I love dressing up and, and putting on makeup.
2: <laughs> well... I'm really glad that you're still here and better than ever, honestly. Uh, and I can't wait to see you in person whenever this oh, whole thing clears up. Oh,
1: I hope so. Up. Please introduce yourself to me. You are such an interesting young man to talk to. I really enjoy talking to you.
2: I'm just, uh, you know, I'll say this again, but it's like, you know, there's so many people from um, the, the the eras of music that I love most, the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. who never... Who don't get to talk about their experience, who've been lost to history. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Well, I I talk about them as much as I can, the ones that I know. And I try to carry on in their stead. I mean, we were taught to do most of the places we worked, we had to do at least three shows a night, if not four. So I go all I all I do now is one show, one hour and a half show, but I do it with the same vehemence and the same same uh uh hard work that I've always had that was the way I was raised I don't throw any of my shows away I leave all of me on the stage when I leave and that's how I want to go out The gay lights of cloud they talk about drama, by the blues that I sing. The song singing sisters, the torch bearing mister's—they just come to listen and dream. The lights are glowing, the champagne is flowing, and each customer's eyes has a gleam. They're the weary and weepless, sad eyed and sleepless. They just come to listen and drink. Now, the black of the night of blues in the night Somehow they both seem to belong they the sad and gay ones The real careful ones They hang on to every word of my song Cause I sing about their drama, The fast-fading glamour and the blues that I sing is the theme For the soft singing sisters And the torch-bearing misters They just come to listen and drink Said so the black of the night Brings the blues in the night Somehow they seem to belong yeah, the sad and the gay ones The real hip-hooray ones They hang on to every word of my song Cause I'm singing about their drama Their fast-fading glamour The blues that I sing is their thing They will soft singing, sisters torch-bearing misters they just come to listen and dream blues are the weepers they just come to listen and dream the song saying the, the torch-bearing misters Man,
2: that's powerful big thanks to our guest Betty LeVette uh, you can go to BettyLeVette.com for her music and her upcoming tour dates which I think there will be some shows coming up uh, that's Betty B-E-T-T-Y-E LeVette dot uh, I see that she has a show booked in Detroit her home turf September 19th 2021 at the Soundboard Theater so look out for that as we talked about in the episode her newest LP is called Blackbirds it is magical check it out and uh, if you go to thebluegrasssituation.com you'll see that back in August of last year, she was actually the Artist of the Month, and there's a great article on her by Greg Shelburne talking about her origins in Detroit and how her newest record came to be. I'll spill a little uh, top-secret news with you. Uh, if you're still listening to the show This Deep In, you are a true champion. Uh, My band Dust Bowl Revival will be releasing a really cool commentary version of our new record, Is It You, Is It Me. It came out last year and kind of got lost in the pandemic pandemonium, but we have a really cool deluxe version coming soon where we actually interview some of the folks in the band and talk about each song in detail. It'll be really special. And a new single will be coming out as well with a very special guest artist that may have been on this very podcast. I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit daunted about learning my own songs again. I haven't had to build up that muscle of playing in front of an audience in about a year or so. But we're going to start rehearsing again. There's going to be some new folks involved in the band. And uh, I'm really excited for you to hear some of these new songs. If you follow our wonderful Instagram page at Show on the Road Podcast, which you should, you'll see that actually a few days ago I went into the Sound Factory, one of my favorite all time studios in Hollywood, and laid down some new tracks of my own with a new crew of collaborators. These were songs that were developed on my back patio over eight months in quarantine, and uh, I'm really excited for you to hear these. And we're going to be launching the Patio Club website and all that stuff very soon. If you would like to donate to keep this podcast going, please go to PayPal, znlupatin at gmail.com and send some lovely funds there. And as always, this podcast is written, produced and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitan. And we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you soon on the trail.